Welcome, everyone, to Break the Boxes Stories. You're listening to WMBR 88.1 FM radio. I'm Esmira, and I am delighted to be joined today for the fifth episode of our second season centering spiritual well-being, um, mental health, and creativity with a dear, dear, dear uncle of mine. Um, So we're going to jump right in, and today we are really lucky to be sitting down with New York native Michael Goodman, who was born in Pittsburgh, raised in the Big Apple, and currently on the Big Island, where he is a full-time father. Um, Michael Goodman, affectionately known as my Uncle Mo, is someone who I grew up with, um, the very first uncle that I can think of, Um, and he has so many stories that I'm sure he will share. Um, with you about um, just seeing me grow up as a young one, (laughs) which I always get really um, shy about, but always appreciate because I think it's rare to have people who have seen you in every formative year of your life um, continue to speak life and affirmation and encouragement over you. Michael Goodman is also one of two sons and one of four children of Linda Goodman. Mary Alice Kemery, popularly known as Linda Goodman, was a New York Times best-selling American astrologer and poet. She is notable as the author of the first astrology book to make the New York Times bestseller list. Her reputation as the world's foremost authority on astrology was established by her first book, Sun Signs, originally published in 1968. Goodman has 106 books on Goodreads, and she sold over 40 million copies, star signs, love signs, sun signs, in many different languages. Linda Goodman has influenced a culture that we now live in today that is inundated with astrology, notions of universe, spirit, stars, the science behind, what it takes to understand our personalities, that of our loved ones, that of our loved ones' loved ones, and ways we understand ourselves to be moving in the world. Linda Goodman spent her time laboring over helping a generation and a generation's generation to better understand what it means to be human through the context of astrology. And so I thought, what better way to tie in this theme of spirituality, where I feel like in our culture, we're constantly alluding to signs. I know I am definitely a big proponent for thinking through what does it mean that I was born on May 25th, 1994, that my sun is in Gemini, but my Venus is in Cancer and my rising is in Libra. I think it's common to sit at dinner tables with good friends and hear about their dating stories and you never can get through one solid friend story without someone asking so what's their sign have you checked to see if you all are compatible (laughs) um there's many different ways we can um play it flip it script it but uncle mo i'd like to first just get you to tell us a little bit about your story your journey growing up where you grew up um, and what it was like to grow up with a best-selling author as a mother and how she influenced you and how you see her, her impact to this day still play out. Okay. Um, 
that's a lot to put in a hat and then come up with a magic rabbit. Um, I, well, I, you know, I grew up. Yeah, you're it's the, okay. You're the storyteller of the storyteller. So tell us about growing up and how you came to be the dope human you are. Okay, well, um, I originally was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, my parents, very soon after I was born, had to move to New York to get work. They were starting a company called Arrange Affair, where they would arrange parties and different affairs for people. At that time, they couldn't take me because I was an infant, and they really didn't have the money at that time. So I was left with a family, a black family. Uh, they had a big German shepherd. And um, most people don't remember things from the age of five and down. I remember when I was six months or less old. Um, I stayed there only for a couple of weeks, I believe, before they came and got me. But it was a traumatic experience when my mother had to give me over to them. Uh, my father and her recalled to me how I screamed and yelled and didn't want to leave. And I think to this day that has an effect on me. But um, they were very, very nice people. Um, I had nothing but good memories about them and the dog. And uh, bottom line is after that, we went to New York and I was pretty much raised in New York almost from the age of six months on. And uh, we grew up pretty poor in the beginning. Uh, we used to live in hotels that were filled with old people and, and pimps and prostitutes. And uh, it was uh, on 54th Street, right around the corner from the Ed Sullivan Theater where they do the David Letterman or they did the David Letterman show afterwards. Mm. And we were in that building right above the awning. Um, and I went to school uh, a couple blocks down from there. I basically grew up in what's used to be called in New York Hell's Kitchen. And yes, it was Hell's Kitchen. Uh, it's now called Clinton because they wanted to try to remake it and make it look better. But um, it's where a lot of the families came, immigrants and people like that came to live there and all the little tenement buildings and the brownstones and stuff. So it was kind of rough growing up there. Mm -hmm. um, I had to fight a lot. Um, but my mother finally wrote her first book on astrology. Um, astrology was she knew a friend and she was at their house and they had a book on the table and it was a big coffee table book called the coffee table book of astrology. Had a lot of very big pictures and stuff and, you know, things about the science, not very much. My mother got interested in it because she had been a writer since high school. Um, she was like, uh, she was a writer for the Frank Blair show and the tonight show. And she used to do news and different things on the radio, which is where she met my father, Sam Goodman, who also was a, uh, worked at the radio place as a disc jockey. This is back before New York. And he was actually very well known back then. He discovered Bobby Vinton and the gumdrops and people like that when rock and roll was first starting. He met my mom. She used to do a show called Loves for Linda, which was she would read letters to the troops overseas uh, in a very beautiful, like Marilyn Monroe type of voice. And she met my dad. They ended up collaborating on something. He helped her edit some things. And then they end up getting together. And that's when my sister Jill was born, my older sister Jill. I'm the baby of the family. Then I was born. Now, I have another sister and another brother that were from my mother's previous marriage from my dad uh, named Bill Snyder. He had my brother Billy. Uh, they had my brother Billy and my, bro and my sister Sally. Mm. Um, anyway, so we grew up in New York. It was kind of rough. It was kind of hard. Then she wrote the first book on astrology that she wanted to write. She really labored over it called Linda Goodman's Sun Signs. And this it was became, when she published it, right? Right. This is in 68. I was about seven or eight years old. And when it came out, they gave her what was then a pretty decent advance. I can't remember the amount, but I do remember a little boy and my dad being very uh, 
uh, let's put it this way. His last name is Goodman. So he was very, he was very uh, careful with money. And he told him he wanted the money in advance in cash. So I remember one night when everybody went to sleep, going to a box and looking in there and it was filled with cash. And I was like, Oh my God, I've never seen that much cash in my life. But from there, we ended up moving to the Upper West Side to a very beautiful seven-room apartment uh, in a pre-war building. And my mother did a lot of work in the apartment to change it around and make nice things in there. And we lived like that, kind of high on the hog after being extremely poor. And I mean so poor that we used to have wish sandwiches, which is uh, two pieces of bread and wish there was something in the middle. And there were cockroaches all over the house. I used to knock cockroaches out of my sneakers every day before I went to school. It was kind of nightmarish. And then we suddenly had money and we were thrust upon a seven room apartment from living in a two room, tiny little hotel room. Mm-hmm. And um, so we lived like that for a couple of years, which is where I met my oldest friends um, on a basketball court one day. And then that kind of all fell apart. And my mom had to go to a house that she had bought in Cripple Creek, Colorado. Um, and this was a house that I hear um, someone had mentioned to me, it might've been you that Nikola Tesla, who my mother was a massive fan of, uh, lived in this house at one time. And, uh, she bought the house. She lived there. She did some writing there. Then she ended up staying there and we lost the apartment. And my dad ended up having to go live with somebody around the corner that he knew. And my sister and I, Jill went to go live with my mother in Colorado, which was nightmarish in its own way, because this is a town called Cripple Creek. And it's an old gold mining town there. And the gold mining days was a big boom town. But when I lived there, there was only like 948 people in the whole town. And it was very old fashioned. People still walked around with six guns on their side, would come to the bar at night with a deer head that they just cut off the deer they hunted, stick it on the bar and everybody would get drunk. They looked at me as a, and I'm going to be verbatim here on what they used to say. They used to call me the New York uh, long hair, city slicker, nigger lover. And it was very, very foul. And I really experienced firsthand what true prejudice is like for, for, uh, brothers and sisters from white people. And so anyway, I went to school there. My sister couldn't handle it. She got a job and left. I stayed with my mom. Jill went back and lived with my dad. He had ended up finally getting a hotel room somewhere else down the road from where we lived down the street. And then I came back and then my sister and I both lived with my dad until my dad's passing. And when my dad passed, I went and lived with, because uh, Jill had already moved out to her own apartment. I went and lived with my mother in California. So those are basic details. There's many, many stories I could tell in between, but right. growing up in New York was rough. Growing up in Colorado was rough. And then when I lived with my dad, I ended up um, getting back together with old friends of mine we put a gang together and I was the only white guy in a black gang that was pretty big. It was called the Pearls. And um, mm. that was a trip. Mm-hmm. And I probably was, I probably, if you saw me, you'd see that I was white. But if you talked to me for a few seconds, you'd swear I was black. Because that's how I was. That's how I talked, how I walked, how I lived, everything. But now, go ahead. Can you say more? Um, because I'm interested, you talked a little bit about where you physically lived in New York and then how you moved to Colorado with your mom for a little bit. And later we'll talk about what it was like living in Los Angeles. But where did you and my father meet? You mentioned, you know, oh, you, met uh, you grew up in Harlem. Um, yeah, this that's back when I 
Um, when my mother and I left New York, we went to Laguna Beach and lived in a house there that someone was nice enough to rent to my mom very cheap. That was beautiful. It was like a mansion. It's actually where um, where Woodrow Wilson was his first Western White House. And um, it was right on the ocean. It was gorgeous. It's where your mother, um, Tamara, is actually from Laguna Beach. Yeah. After that, we got we got some bad luck again. And my mother said, look, you're going to have to go back to New York. I'm going to give you, like, some money. You're going to have to try to make it somehow. I've actually got to go sleep on a couch of somebody I knew from high school in West Virginia where I grew up. So she gave me the money. I went to New York. I was actually homeless for quite a while. Then I ended up getting a room in someone's house, and I lived there, and I got back into the mix of things in New York. And one day when I was with a girlfriend who I used to go up and walk her dog with her that lived up the road from where I was, one day we're walking, and we saw somebody, and she started talking to him, and it was your dad, Remy, Remy D., Remy Davis. And I had met him once before very briefly with a guy named Eddie I, who was a friend of mine, a little hippie kid that turned, turned into a Rasta guy. Right. And Remy was talking all quick and all this stuff, and I found him kind of fascinating. But it was very brief. Then when I was with my girlfriend that day, we went to a vestibule, and Remy wanted to smoke up with us. So we all hung out for about 20 minutes, half hour in there, and me and Remy were jazzing this and that about sports and this and the other thing. And I really, I really dug him. I, I dug his style. I dug the way he was, and he dug me. So much later than that, maybe, I don't know, five, six months later, I walked into a famous bar that's across the street from Columbia University called the West End. Very, very big bar with different rooms that does different things. One of the rooms, they had a stand-up mic night, and you could just get up and start doing stuff. I walk into the bar, and from the time I got close to the door, I could hear the screeching voice of Remy D rapping. <laughs> and uh, I went into the room, and sure enough, it was Remy, and he was rapping. Um, let me say he was trying really hard is the kindest thing I can say. Oh, and he was okay. doing okay. He was doing okay, though. He was holding his own. So when he got off, he was like, oh, hey, Mo. And I was like, what's up, Ram? We hung out there for a little while. But we didn't really become friends until one time when he was on Broadway at 106 and saw me coming out of his store, and I was stuffing food down my pants. And he said, hey, what's up, Mo? And I was like, hey. He's like, what are you doing? I said, oh, I got to go visit my friend, my best friend, uh, named Phil was in jail and he ended up getting AIDS while he was in jail and they pushed, they transferred him to a New York city hospital to a, a ward where they had prisoners that had AIDS and you couldn't really bring anything to him. So I used to stuff food cause the food was there was horrible in my pants and bring it to him. And at that time, I think I had some chicken and yellow rice and black beans and I had this hot meal stuck down my pants explaining to Remy what I was doing. Cause they used to search you. But the one guard knew me, so he wouldn't really pat me down. And Remy was truly enamored with that. He was like, you're going to take the chance to get arrested, to, ste- to sneak a man with AIDS who's, who's not doing well, probably going to die, some food, just because he's your best friend. Yeah. And I said, yeah. He said, this is this friend of yours, this black friend, Phil? And I said, yeah. And your dad kind of looked at me with a look like, wow, this guy is for real. This is a for real white boy. And I said, yeah, I do this all the time. And we hung out for a few minutes till the bus came. I got in the bus. Later on, Remy and I became very, very tight. He ended up living with me in New York for a little while. Mm. And then he went to Hawaii. He went to California. Then he went to Hawaii. He met your mom. And he had told me, listen, this place is paradise. I'm telling you, you need to come move here. And I said, Remy, I'm not moving from New York. I have a really good job on the east side. Is one of those fancy doormen with the white gloves 
I'm in the union. I get all kinds of benefits. He's like, listen to me. You got your dog. I had a, a blue healer named Boomer, my greatest dog in the world that I ever had. He was part human. Anyway, you know Boomer and uh, everybody's favorite dog. I ended up saying, okay, what I'll do is I'll go out there for a year and see if I like it. So I packed up everything in my beautiful brownstone basement apartment that I had with a little tiny yard that I loved and said, I'm going to do what this guy said. I need to get out of here because New York is not what it used to be. That's another story I can explain another time. But there was New York was getting foul and I didn't like it. I was stopping crimes and still getting in trouble. Um, but I did get an award from the mayor once for stopping a rape. Oh, um, you're going to have to tell us that. I'm like, say more. And what was the name of the award and what year? Can you locate us? Well, I don't know what the name of the award was, but he sent me a letter from David Dinkins, who was the mayor of New York at that time, in appreciation for and some award. I forget what it was. It wasn't a money award or anything. But because where I was working as a doorman, I knew this very nice Indian lady, beautiful lady, absolutely gorgeous. And I used to see her and she'd say hi to me when she'd walk by and I'd be outside. She lived in a brownstone right next to the building I worked at. And one day I went out there and I heard a scuffle and I heard somebody yell. And then I heard somebody say, shut up or I'll kill you. So I went over to the vestibule and this guy was attempting to rape her. And when I came and I was like, hey, the guy ran, pushed me by and ran down the street. I asked her if she was okay. She said, yes, I ran after him. We ran about a block down, held him down with a headlock and had people call the police and the police came and took him away. The woman was very, very nice. That's one thing I did, but there were other crimes where I would stop people that would grab purses and they'd run by and I'd throw my bicycle in front of them so they'd trip and fall and they we'd catch them and hold them till the cops came. But I wasn't really feeling appreciated that much. So when I thought of myself, what does New York have for me anymore? I don't hang out with the same friends. I'm mostly in the house alone. I work at a job that's okay, that's got great benefits, good union. But I need some adventure, and I had never done anything really ballsy like that. So I said, okay, I'm going to do it. I packed up everything, and we're talking about like 26 boxes. I threw out all the furniture, and I sent them all out there, and Remy received them all. And uh, I, got, I ended up going to Hawaii. Remy showed up hours late to pick me up at the airport. There was this tiny little airport in a place I had never been, almost like another country. And the taxi drivers kept saying to me, listen, the airport's closed. You sure you don't want to ride somewhere? I was like, I'd love to, but I don't know where to go. They were like, well, I hope something happens soon because they're going to kick you out of here. Right at that time, Remy pulls up and was like, Mo, what's up? Came, put me in the car, drove me to the, drove me directly to the ghetto to a project. And I heard gunshots in the background. And I'm like, what is this guy doing? Then he drove me back to the house and I met your mom and you at that time. This is where it falls into you. You were just a toddler. Wait, so this is in Hawaii that you heard gunshots in the background? Say more. Yeah, over, you know, you know, uh, you know, um, well, back then it was kind of crazy. And I remember when Remy went in to take care of some kind of business, he left me in the car and I heard pop, pop. And so I'm thinking, this guy just took me. I'm from New York. He takes me to Hawaii where he tells me it's so beautiful and natural. And I'm hearing pop, pop in the background while I'm sitting in the car. So that wasn't exactly that fun. But then I went, I met your mom, and the next morning I met all of you. And all of you consisted of, at that time, your older sister, Araja, who's not Remy's child, but he was raising with Tamara. And I met you, and you were just a little toddler. You were about, I think, six months old. You literally could only crawl. And so you, my dear, are the reason why I ended up having my son, Soa. I mean, we're talking a lot about mental health and well-being and spiritual health and well-being. And 
I think when you're a young child, I mean, you alluded to it a little bit where you said that growing up, you know, with your mother, um, whose, you know, writing career thankfully kind of took you out of poverty or being poor to like living a different lifestyle. Um, but that that didn't stop, right? Like all of your way of living or your lifestyle didn't stop there. And like, things still were were rough or were different. And I think for me, mm. growing up too, with my beloved parents, I think a lot of people grow up with parents that do their best. And that also, there are memories that you don't want to remember or that you just... Ah, right, 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 right. I think um, something that we talk about when it comes to like breaking boxes, it's like breaking cycles of 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 dysfunction or cycles of unhealthy ways of being um trauma is a big theme that i'm currently um, talking about in a class that i i'm a teaching assistant for here at harvard called african literature and the poetics of memory i I didn't think about i didn't think about traumatic memories would maybe make you erase a lot of those memories from you absolutely because there were a lot there were a lot of arguments and i broke up a lot of fights there were times where i had to grab you and put you in my arms because they would be arguing and stuff and i didn't want you to be part of it so yeah i can definitely realize why you would uh why you black out some of those memories or put those memories in the back of your mind. Yeah. But yeah, I, I just remember it. Funny you said that because I remember you always knew how much I cared for you. Even when you're in Florida, I used to talk to you on the phone. Sometimes your mom would put you on the phone. And um, when you came back and you were going to KL, uh, was it KL high school maybe or junior high school or something? Middle. But I remember. I remember there was a McDonald's right there and you guys, all the kids would kind of go to McDonald's and hang out there like after school or at lunch. And Soli and I walked in and that's when Soli was already born. He was just a little guy then. And uh, I walked in and I remember going up to you guys, you and Abby, and I would talk to you guys and you would talk to me. You weren't like embarrassed by me or anything because you were with your friends. But I remember talking to you and you had like a strange attitude, a look in your eye towards me. And I didn't know what it was. And one day when we were at a party somewhere, I think at Rada Goodman's house. Are you and Rada related at all? I've always wondered. The Goodmans? No, no. She's just, her name is Rada Goodman. We used to get our mail mixed up. She has no relation to me at all. Nice lady, though. Anyway, I remember at a party at her house, I think it was, me talking to you about it. And say, because you used to, like, even when you weren't at McDonald's, you came over to the house once. And I was like, Asmira, we don't seem as close as we used to. What's the matter? Because you asked me about my mother's books. And I just changed the subject on you. And you said, well, what do you mean? And I said, I don't know. You just, you seem different with me. You treat me a little different. You look at me like, almost like you're looking down on me. And you explained to me, well, the truth of the matter is, is I remember you being this very big, muscular, strong guy that did a lot of stuff and this and that and the other thing. And now I see you fading and you're not as in good a shape and you smoke cigarettes a lot and you don't seem to be fulfilling those dreams that I know you had. And I feel bad because I want to see you do more with your life. And I was looking at this girl. I'm looking at this young girl going at first, my mind, my New York mind went, she's judging me. She's just a kid. Who's she judging? And then my deeper mind said, Oh my God, what a challenge this is. This young person that knew me when I was a little bit different. I first came to Hawaii and I was a a doer and I used to grow my own herb and, I was in tremendous shape and, you know, I used to go places by myself with my dog and ride my bike everywhere. And I wasn't riding my bike anymore. And I was sitting in a house and I was just being armchair general with my son. 
And I said, she's right. She has every right to point that out. She's a loved one. She's family to me. And I took it seriously. And I actually cried later on that night because I said to myself, I have disappointed my almond joy, someone who I would never want to disappoint. And to this day, every day I'm not productive in some way. I give myself a little kick in the ass because I think about you because you have achieved way more than I think your mother or your father or I ever dreamed you would. I mean, you are a Harvard graduate that teaches at Harvard who has traveled the world, done capoeira everywhere, and has spoken in speeches and done poets poetry and has an unbelievable mind. And the pride that I have for you, I'm sure your mother and father are just as much, if not more, and your brothers and sisters and everybody you know, I am so proud of you and what you have achieved because that's the person you are. And that's why you said that to me back then. To you, time shouldn't be wasted. Life is short. Let's get on with it. Let's create. Let's do. Let's help others. And that is my key goal in my life. What I've always dreamed to do throughout my life since I was a child. I love to help other people. That's why I have these long talks with you and your brother these pep talks. I was going to say, you've always been a source. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for your vulnerability, Uncle Mo. Something that always really genuinely amazes me is you have a way with words and you are a very good friend. You've been, I've seen you be, be that friend to, to my family in times of need. It's very rare for, I think, people to be open to, accepting help and to accepting support and a lot of the time it's because it's difficult to trust other people especially when you are down and out and the fact that you know you mentioned in that story that kind of what got my dad to realize you were a real one was when you were willing to put yourself on the line to like kind of smuggle as much food as you could to get it to your friend who is in prison. And that really speaks to your heart that you have. Like if they're a friend, then you're, you're going to, you know, put your, Oh yeah. When it comes to friendship, I'm not bragging like this old, old uh, black and white uh, Western show. These guys used to be a fast draw. And the guy would say, he'll outdraw you every time talking about his son. And he said, that's no brag, just fact. So this is no brag. It's just a fact. I'm probably the best friend anybody could ever have. I often say to myself, I wish I had a Mo, because Mo is a friend to the end. And when I say friend to the end, that guy that I used to sneak food to, my all-time best friend, Phil, Phil died in my arms of AIDS. He took his last breath looking at me, literally his last breath. I said to him, you don't have to hold on. My dad's up there waiting for you with chocolate cake. Michael Peterson, another friend of ours who died of AIDS, is up there waiting. And just let go, Phil. It's okay. And he he closed his eyes for a second, opened his eyes, had a sigh, and a tear came down his cheek, and that was it. And this so, was 1980. This was in uh, this was in late late 80s, like 89 or 90, something like that. Because I came to Hawaii in 94, and I didn't know your dad that long in New York, but I knew him. No, maybe like 88. Yeah. Right. I was gonna say 88. Yeah, because that's when the yeah. AIDS epidemic got really really bad. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's a shame because nowadays they have drugs that probably could have kept my best friend alive. That's right. May his soul. AIDS is a horrible thing, man. He would get better and then get worse and then get better and then get worse. It's like, it it plays with your head. You know what I mean? You think you're getting better and maybe you're going to lick it and he'd be up walking around talking to the other prisoners in that ward 
And then another day I'd come and he'd be completely down. And they were horrible to him because he was a prisoner. Um, he used to, you know, he couldn't hold himself. So he would let go, so to speak. And they had to come in and they had to get the bedpan and put it under him and clean up his sheets and stuff. And because they didn't like dealing with him because he had AIDS and it was, you know, poop or whatever from an AIDS patient, they would hit him. You said they would hit him? They would hit him. I came in one time and he, he looked he looked very upset and he had been crying. I said, what's the matter, Phil? And he said, no, I don't want to talk about it. I said, Phil, what's the matter? Talk to me. It's Mo. And it took me like five minutes to get it out. But he finally admitted that he he pooped in the, and they had to clean it and they were mad about it. So they slapped him around. Wow. That's how it used to be back in the AIDS time. People had no respect at all. Yeah, I mean, they were so frightened about, of it and didn't want to deal with it. When what? You talk about safeguarding the inherent worth and dignity of every human, and you're talking about a really serious issue when we think about the carceral state, right? Yeah, yeah. People who are imprisoned are treated like animals. What it means to imagine a world where punitive justice is not a thing because punitive justice does not exist. Punitive measures are not justice, and we know that black and brown communities are disproportionately affected by not just exactly what you just said that's why they say in the, in the in the hood just us we're the ones that get fucked over that's right. you know what i mean i'm talking about people of color but yeah i mean i could get into issues of uh, uh, the whole color thing and it would it would fascinate your listeners believe me i i, I am well schooled on the subject of uh the the hierarchy of this country and this world and what their fear uh, of, of it becoming a black world and then becoming a terrible minority that don't have control anymore and can't be in the 1%. They fear it. And it's what holds, it's what, it's what, it's what creates prejudice in the first place is I mean, fear. The, the film recently came out, Judas and the Black Messiah, which maybe many of you have seen. It's, um, it was done exquisitely by Ryan Coogler, who also is a US, USC graduate and who, um, was the genius behind Black Panther, um, made Chadwick Boseman's soul rest in peace. Um, Ryan Coogler also, one of his first projects with Michael B. Jordan was Fruitvale Station, which outlined the death of Oscar Grant um, at Fruitvale Station in the Bay Area. And so his art is committed to telling a story and tying it, rooting it in social justice. And when we talk about breaking boxes, we talk about using storytelling and the value of storytelling, not just to build and cultivate spiritual resolve, but to also ground us in what it takes to overcome domination, self-doubt, the forms of subjugation that are not just material and physical, but that are also psychological and spiritual, that it's 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 threefold, it's multidimensional, it's comprehensive, it's polysingular. Um, and so when we think about um, what you're what you're sharing with your, your your friend Phil, who was suffering from AIDS and was mistreated in the carceral state, died because of because of that those conditions. Um, and you're talking about you know even the conditions that you met you met my father in in in, in New York in the mid uh, 1980s. It sounds like. Um, and kind of how at that time there was a lot different about the world. You all were not really living in a world where cell phones, uh, I mean, like these types of forms of technology. Oh, my God. The difference between now 
technically for the technology and then was so vast it's almost mind-boggling. I mean, you probably, if someone were to come to you back when you were a teenager and say, one day you're going to be able to talk to someone across the world and look at them through a screen on your phone, you would have said, and I'm also, you know, (laughs) that's like telling me that the sky is purple and, you know, the water. That I thought about how I would have thought, that's some James Bond, Dick Tracy shit right there. I'm no way is it going to be like that. I would have never known that everyone would be on these little devices in their hand and spending most of their time on it. <laughs> Adults and kids. So yeah, that's changed drastically. Yeah. And I'm wondering what you think, what you think your mom would say about how technology has influenced our engagement as humans. Wow. Wow. What do you think? That- That, my dear, is a truly interesting question. They have technology for around for a long time, which people yell at me like you about why I don't use it. The Dragon software where you can just talk and write a book. You don't even have to sit down at a keyboard anymore. You can actually just talk and write. I don't know why I don't do it. I guess it's fear, which is I'm a fear based person, which is why I don't succeed in all the things I could have been amazing at. What my mother probably would have thought of is, is. She would have looked towards movies like uh, The Terminator and um, what's the one, you know, with Neo, the guy Neo. uh, I can't remember the name of the movie now. I don't know why I'm I'm getting old. Um, Oh, The Matrix, which, by the way, were both of them originally written by a black woman, but um, and stolen from her. Um, Anyway, she would have looked towards movies like that to say how she would have been fearful of how technology at some point when artificial intelligence becomes a whole thing, not just a part thing, when it becomes real, what would actually happen when technology would get to a point that it is now, for instance, where most people don't realize technology and computers really control every facet of our lives, electricity, water, everything is run by by, by a computer. So we have literally turned over our existence to something we invented to make our lives easier, which could very easily trip us up one day really bad. I fear for that. I think my mother would have feared for that. Although I think she would have really enjoyed some of the technology, like the computer. I mean, you can get on the computer on the internet, and within seconds, you can find out anything you want. Like when I was a child, the most amazing man that I knew, the most intelligent man I knew was Sam Goodman, my dad. Not only was he an exceptional human being, what we call salt of the earth, or as Jewish people would say in in, uh, Jewish slang, he was a real mensch. Besides that, he was the most intelligent man. Say more about that, because your dad was, where was your dad? Where did your dad originally? um, uh, My dad, uh, my dad's parents came from Latvia, and uh, they escaped, and both my grandparents were in concentration camps and had the numbers tattooed on their arms. Um, they came to America. My, my dad's dad, my grandfather, started a, a little deli, a store up in Yonkers, New York, and that's where my dad grew up. And he was a very kind man. In fact, he sometimes was too kind, where during the Depression and things were really hard, he used to give people food and tell them to pay me later from his store and lose a lot of money. So he wasn't very successful at that store. But um, my dad... Uh, my dad ended up, like I told you, being in radio. He was fairly famous because he discovered a few different people, 
In fact, Bobby Vinton, I don't know if any of your um, listeners would even know who Bobby Vinton is. He sang the song, Blue Velvet, famous song back in the day. And um, my dad is the one who got that airtime on the radio. He drove my mother to the hospital when she was having me when I was a baby. He actually drove my mother to the hospital. Anyway, my dad was, uh, he did lots of odd jobs. He never lived up to his potential, very much like me. He used to like to blend into the background. He spoke many languages, and he amazed me at every time. And the reason I'm telling you the story is because... What languages he spoke? What languages did he speak? Hebrew? Oh, well, when you were in the war back in those days, my dad was in World War II. He was uh, in the 82nd Airborne, one of the most decorated divisions, and he... Uh, he had shrapnel in his body and he had a purple heart and, a, and something else, like a couple different medals. And when he came back from the war, that, they call that the greatest generation for a lot of reasons. One of the main ones to men like me is those were real men. They didn't whine. They didn't complain. PTSD was like, hey, what do you mean? I'll have a couple of drinks and that'll be it. PTSD didn't exist. But everybody in World War II who saw action had PTSD, it believe existed, me. But it wasn't really talked about or like a cultural... Yeah, it wasn't named. Right. It wasn't named. Right. So I say they're the greatest generation because those were real men. If those men had a family, most of them, not all of them, but most of them, if they had to go lick a toilet seat clean for a dime to feed their family, they'd do it. They wouldn't care if it was a job at McDonald's or a job in the fields or jobs that... Uh, excuse me, but the white people of this country have gone ahead and let all the other people of, uh, of minorities and different colors do those jobs. And the white people are too good to do those jobs in general. So my dad wasn't like that. He would have done any job and did any job mm-hmm. and to feed us. And he didn't make very much money. But mm-hmm. what I was, the point I was trying to make is he was my walking back then. We didn't have the internet. We had encyclopedias and you had to read and look up in a book what you wanted to know. And my dad, of course, would always say to me, my famous, he'd always say, Michael, you have to read. You have to read more. And I'd say, why do I have to read? I got you. And I could ask him any question. And I mean any question about virtually anything. He was a, a plethora of knowledge in his mind. And he could answer me. And nowadays, you know who my person is like Soli? My son. Because my son is so quick on his phone that I can ask him any question about anything. And he goes like this. Tap, 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 tap. And he gives me an answer in seconds. So that goes back into what about the technology, what my mother would have thought. But <coughs> excuse me, both my mother and my father would have been fascinated with the Internet, that you can look up things. Mm-hmm. But in a way, when you think about it, Asmira, it's a little bit scary. You can now see what's going on all over the world in any country in a few seconds. I don't know that humans are really designed for that. I don't know that our minds can process that much negativity and bad news to everything that's going on in the world. It is, it's, it, it is overwhelming to, to many. People. It's consuming. It consumes your mind. What it asks us, asks of us though, is to become that much more diligent with our balance and what we do consume when we consume it. Balance. balance right? Key word. Um, yeah. And so hey, everybody that's listening, hey, everybody that's listening, do you hear this young lady talking? Do you hear the intelligence spewing out of her mouth? Do you know how fascinating it is for a 60-year-old guy that knew her since she crawled to see this amazing human being? I truly am I, I am astonished. It's awesome, and I'm amazed by you. Keep going. I love it. Keep talking. 
you. Um, you are the world's best hype man, I swear. <laughs> Everyone needs to get you an Uncle Mo. <laughs> I'm telling you, I wish I had an Uncle Mo. <laughs> um, you said it the other day, I would be a great motivational speaker, but anyway. I mean, perhaps you're just beginning right now. I mean, life is life is always here ready to be lived, no matter how old we are, right? Socrates tells us the unexamined life is a life not worth living, but you've been examining it to different degrees, and I think it's important not to follow. Oh, oh, I didn't realize until just this moment, I've heard that saying a thousand times, Socrates is one of my favorite philosophers, and I did not know that he was the author of those words. Yeah. That is awesome. <laughs> it's true. And I examine life like a, an MRF or I'm telling you, I'm, I am an examiner. I examine people. I study people. That's what I do. I study people. I study their body. I'm a great reader of body language. Many of my friends will call me when they get a new girlfriend or boyfriend and say, Mo, I want you to meet this person because they know within five minutes of talking to them, I'll tell them everything they need to know. I can read people very, very, very well. Can you tell me about what you read most recently and I want to talk about your writing because I think that it's a gift that you have and that you've mentioned in the past you're hoping to begin to cultivate and I'm sure there are people who are listening who are curious about not what their gifts are not only that but also what can they do to begin to cultivate that and I think it can be really daunting when you're wanting to start something and you don't really know where to start or you know you have a lot to say you don't always know how to say it and I mean you're the son of a writer and the son of uh, a business owner and a survivor of of you know of terror genocide trauma Um, and we know the intergenerational trauma is real we know that when we don't address certain things, that they come up for us, they manifest in our life in different relationships. And I think if there's one thing that you would want to tell people um, from where you're at in your journey right now, I'm curious how you would characterize it. Um, um, if I could say one thing to help all the people in the world, what I would say is, number one, believe in yourself. Number two, forgive yourself and forgive others. And number three, and this is not number three because that's the order of it. This is the most important one. Have no fear. Have no fear. Fear is what holds us all back. Like like my my good friend, uh, Master Yoda from Star Wars said, um, Oh God, am I not going to remember my favorite quote of all time? Because I'm old. But while you're while while you're remembering what 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 that what he says, I will say what I like about you know because we speak things into existence, right? So rather than like the universe is constantly hearing hearing us, and we're naming and we're creating our reality uh, to a certain extent, not to push away from or minimize material differences that are fraught and brought on by policy and structural inequities, but. Fear is something that we all experience even when we don't want to because we're human and we have heartbeats. And something that I've found has been really helpful is to give me, me, me meaning to it and naming what does fear stand for and knowing that there's choice there. So fear can be, it can be forget everything and run, right? It can mean to forget, just forget everything and run, right? Which is such a, a human inclination. Or flight or, flight or flight response. It can be face everything and rise. If you face everything, it doesn't mean that you'll be facing it without fear, but it's that 
you're afraid and you do it anyway, right? Oh, no, let, let, let me explain something on that note. Mike Tyson, who everyone knows who he is, everyone can, considers him a crazed, fearless warrior in the ring, especially in his earlier fights. Mike Tyson will sit down with you and talk to you and tell you this, because I've heard him say it. Every single fight that he had, mm-hmm. moments or up to an hour or moments before the fight, he was scared to death. Mm-hmm. That's why he defeated them in such a vicious, serious, no joke, quick, put him away, away, because he didn't want to get knocked out. Okay. So, yes, fear can be motivational sometimes. It's not completely negative. But where it's negative is in my life, I have discovered that if you're fearful of doing what you should do, once you, let's say you've forgiven yourself and forgiven others, once you're on a higher level of existence, a higher plane metaphysically, if you still have fear in you, it will prevent you from doing the great things you need to do, not only for yourself, but for others, because I truly believe that a life that hasn't been given to giving to others and doing for others is not a life worth living. As well as if you've never had love in your life, those are the people I truly feel sorry for. Because at least I've had love in my life. To have, to have somebody say, I love you and mean it, that's not family, is a great thing to have in your life. And if you never had it in your life, I feel truly sorry for you. But what I was saying about fear, you're absolutely right. Fear can be a great motivator. Anger is not a completely bad thing. Anger can be a great right. motivator. These emotions can, 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 when channeled and when directed, can actually be really, really powerful, right? Because they're all, they're all material. They're data. They're research. They're telling us something about ourselves. And if they, if if our sights are set on achieving self not like self awareness, knowledge of self, which I think we all are, we all are committed to in different degrees. Then, whenever we have strong emotions show up, our que- our quest becomes. What is this telling me? What's coming up for me? Where does it stem from? What do I want to do with it? And I think often when we don't take a minute to ask ourselves where we want to go with it or what we want to do with it, then we begin to misdirect that anger or we'll begin to lash out or we'll begin to recreate the harm that was given to us even when we didn't deserve it. Um, but I know this is kind of where we're flowing and we're going and, you know, your stories can can last us into the late of the evening. And I want to ask you what your favorite book of your mother's is. Well, Sun Signs, the first book, was more like to understand the astrological signs of you, your boss, your your child, your wife, your husband, things like that. Love Signs had to do with compatibility between the Sun Signs and every aspect therein. That book is over a thousand pages long. It's it's a thousand two hundred something like pages long. Of the Bible's thickness. It's in fact, her books are have been have been um, written about as the Bibles of astrology. Um, that book is really unbelievably helpful to so many people. But if you want to know my favorite book, it's her third book called Star Signs. Star Signs has to do with higher metaphysical subjects, has to do with numerology, has to do with colors, has to do with um, uh, the Chaldean alphabet and different words and how they break down into numbers and and the other thing, um, which I was highly... What? Why is it your favorite? Like, what? where have you seen Well, that? because of that, because it doesn't just deal with astrology. I'll tell you a fact a lot of people don't know about my mother, and I don't mind saying it. Um, my mother really wanted to kind of get away from astrology. Because you have to understand, her books were called Linda Goodman's Sun Signs, Linda Goodman's Love Signs, Linda Goodman's Star Signs. 
And we used to joke and say they wanted to write a book one day called Linda Goodman's Manure Signs. As long as it had Linda Goodman's something signs in it, it'd be a hit. Mm-hmm. And my mother wanted to kind of move beyond, she moved beyond astrology much earlier. And she got more into metaphysics and spirituality in general and higher knowledge and the higher self and what we consider to be, uh, well, even into religion. Um, and that book deals with a lot of those things. So to me, technically, that's more of my mother's real thoughts where she was at at that time. For you, what's the difference? Because I think often, I mean, when we think about spirituality, I think about matters of the spirit, matters, matters of the heart as well. What is necessary to keep you sustained, to keep your spirit alive, well, healthy, happy, hopeful, joyful, compassionate. And when I think of astrology, yes, there's the science, the study of the stars, the study of the universe. Um, but it, in our culture today, is conflated often, or is it can be sort of this, not meta, it's not a, a meta spiritual, but like a new age spirituality. I think astrology is heavily sort of intertwined with. So how do you differentiate the two? And for your sign as Scorpio, have you found your mom's books helpful? Oh my God, of course. I mean, well, everybody says this about their sun sign, but there's only one true greatest sun sign and that's Scorpio. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because Scorpio is the only sun sign that is represented by uh, many different things. The first one is the gray lizard. And that's the lowest, least um, uh, advanced Scorpio. Then comes the scorpion. And then comes the eagle. And finally comes the phoenix rising from its own ashes. Now, (laughs) why that's important and why I say Scorpio is so intense is every sun sign has an ancient um, uh, uh, couple of words that kind of like say something about it. Scorpio's is, I know. And the the representation of the gray lizard means that you're still crawling around. You're not very advanced. You're only looking around to eat. The scorpion has a little bit more. They have defense mechanisms. A scorpion can actually be frozen solid and then reanimated. It can deal with immense heat. It can would be it would probably would be one of the last things on the planet if the planet didn't exist anymore. Them and cockroaches. So. Then you go to the eagle, which is above and looks down on things and sees more and is more aware. And then you come to the phoenix, which rises from its own ashes, meaning you come from all the pain, the turmoil, the fear, all the things that were bad, rise up from it and become anew. So I am in the stage, I believe, of an eagle. So um, it taught me a lot to understand myself. But you have to understand when it comes to astrology, your sun sign, as a lot of people complain that don't believe in astrology, uh, so to speak, um, they feel like I'm not an Aquarius. I don't act like an Aquarius or I'm not like a Pisces. And they don't realize that you have your ascendant and you have your moon. Right. And rising in your moon. I think the and all the other planets, your Venus, your this, that, the moon, and all of that has an effect on your personality, who you are. Strangely enough, my mother taught me something a long time ago, which I've seen is true, that a lot of people who are very disbelieving in astrology are exactly like their sun sign. Yes. Like if they're a a Taurus, they're really a Taurus. You know what I mean? It's when you rise above and become more knowledgeable of things and get a higher frequency that you start becoming all these things. One of the most ancient things that were written about astrology is when you become 
Um, when you become who you need to be, when you're vibrating at a higher level, you do become all the 12 signs and you aren't so much represented by one thing. Interesting. So the Scorpio mantra, um, well, one, I'm thinking about three different Scorpios in my life who have been present as catalysts for transformation. Each moment, each season, when I was iterating, evolving, they were one of the most influential people and still to this day, some of my closest, closest friends. So Scorpios being committed to one, having a lot of will, some of the, one of the strongest willpower in the signs outside of Taurus. Taurus has Taurus and Scorpio. That's right. Taurus has strong staying power. Scorpio has strong willpower, very passionate and um, really dislikes dishonesty. Doesn't have a lot of um, uh, bandwidth for dishonesty. Um, okay, I'm going to tell you something crazy right there. I'm going to stop you. They, that, what you just said is exactly true, but they're also the greatest liars in the world. Mm-hmm. Because this, I'm going to tell everybody something if you don't know. The secret to a real lie that you can get away with is you have to believe what you say with all of your heart and soul. It has to be embedded in your mind as the truth. And then you can beat any lie detector there is. And because Scorpios are so intense and so deep and put their roots down, and when they got a root down, it's deep. You have to really dig that root out to show them something's different for it to go another root. That's one of the reasons why they do hate lies, because they know that they can lie better than anybody else. And the dishonesty factor is what destroys – the dishonesty factor is one of the greatest factors of what destroys society, the lies that we're told by those who are in power the lies that keep us in fear. Lying is a really deep subject. We could go down another rabbit hole with that, but finish what you were saying. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, that, that really enhances uh, what I think can be some of the, the sting, right? The sting of the Scorpio. Exactly. And um, see the the scorpion level is very vengeful. They always want to get revenge. If you hurt them, they want to hurt you. Whereas for example, a Libra will be like, well, I'm not mad if you're not mad, right? The, the, the Libra well, they weigh everything out. They weigh out if it should be right. what they're not. It's Libra's MA mantra is I balance. Scorpio's mantra here is I transform, I see. Um, uh, you know, the Gemini's. Yes, mantra, that's one of them. I transform. That's one of them. Yes. Yes. Gemini's is I think, right? There's a lot of intellectual energy happening with, with Mercury. Well, we actually, we are rounding out. I want to just thank you, Uncle Mo, for your time and for your vulnerability and for your stories, for your deep sharing. And it's an honor really to have you on here. It feels like a dream come true in some ways. It just hit me one day. And to be honest, actually, what what made it hit me was reading your writing on Facebook as well. I remember you being really honest about how you were missing your mom. You were missing Phil, who you talked about. You were missing your dad. You just were missing, missing the good old times, missing your, missing pearls, pizza, I believe, and just being honest about that. And I think a lot of people um, really are in this pandemic, especially experiencing a sense of nostalgia, a sense of longing, a sense of missing that genuine human connection and, and, and the meaning that we would make in life. And you're honest. The la- really. The last thing, the last thing I wrote in that was I miss mo- what I miss most is being young. That's I wish I was young like you, my friend. And you know, youth, what? youth is a very, very messed up, misunderstood time. But man, if I could go back with what I know now, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And I will say this, 
I said something to you the other day. We can close basically with this and one last thing. Um, you and I were talking the other day, and I said something to you, and you said, oh, my God, that's so lyrical, Mo. We should put that in a song, and we really should. I basically said to my almond joy that I want her to be a thief. I want her to be a thief and steal all my thoughts, take all the knowledge that's in my mind before this ride is over for me so that someone gets something out of the plethora of knowledge I have in my brain. And I wanted her to steal all my thoughts away. And um, I really do mean that. Be a thief of my mind. Exactly. That could be the name of the song. And the last thing I wanted to say, because I did remember and I found it, the Master Yoda quote from Star Wars, he said, fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. Mm. That's it right there. Yeah. Thank you for that. Wow. Love you, everybody. And my mother's, she used to, she didn't have a business card. She had a little card with pink writing, very small in the middle of the card. She would get people in the city have a business card. And all it said was these three words, expect a miracle. Mm, and I feel like the day after Christ is risen, Al-Masiyah come. <laughs> the miracles are in And a- Easter was yesterday, huh? That's right. Well, there you have it, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to our fifth episode with Michael Goodman, the son of Linda Goodman, um, one of the world's most renowned astrologers, author of the New York Times bestseller, Sun Signs, over 40 million copies sold in many different languages, and a dear a dear uncle to me, Uncle Moski, who's about to write Aloha, a Aloha, everyone. Aloha. All right, this is WMBR. You're listening to Break the Boxes Stories. I'm Azmira, and I will see you next time. Mother, mother, there's too many of you to cry. Brother, brother, brother. There's far too many